0: we're recording. Okay. So several people have asked in May on the last month in the last few weeks, even, um, this big question, what am I supposed to be doing in my practice? What am I supposed to be doing with my meditation? Which is a great, great question. Um, and we need to ask that of ourselves continuously. Um, it's really important that we constantly check back in. Where am I at with my practice? What am, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Um, These type of questions are really helpful for practice, especially if you've been practicing for a while, because our practice can plateau and we can get lost easily and not know exactly what, what are we supposed to be doing with the breath again and how do we work with the hindrances. There's so many different practices and so many things we can be doing. So as I've said before, it's really helpful to be intentional with our practice. You'll get more out of it if you really have a strong sense of what you're doing and why you're doing it. So I'm glad that question's been asked because I have asked myself that on numerous occasions. Um, And I got to a point in my practice over a particular amount of years where I got started getting kind of confused as to what I was supposed to be doing. I had several different tools. You've got loving kindness and we have body sweeping and we've got walking meditation and various breath energy uh, meditations and all kinds of meditations from a variety of traditions all coming together. Um, So the big question is how do we integrate all this information and create a coherent path for ourselves to walk how do we make our practice really sensible so we know what we're doing and where we're going and it's not easy to do it's not easy to come up with that uh, coherence in practice so i'm hoping today to talk a little bit more but from a different perspective on views and how the views of our practice determine what we're doing moment to moment and then over the next few weeks probably the next few months actually We'll break down insight meditation and Vipassana practice into all of its component parts, and we'll talk about how to practice with all of the different pieces, because there's lots of pieces. And I remember on the first day that we had Wednesday Wake Up, I said that one of my commitments was to break down Vipassana for everybody, so that you can really see all the details and all of the tools and techniques, so you can start getting familiar with all the different things you can be doing and how to use them. So this is that beginning, now that we've spent, gotten to a little bit groove here, and talked about intention and view and the goal of the path, we're going to start doing actual, <laughs> actual vipassana practice. Um, so in order to do that, we're going to talk about the factors of awakening, um, but I wanted to talk about view a little bit in light of what we've talked about over the last few weeks um, and give you a perspective on the practice. Part of what determines how you practice is going to be personal. So part of what determines what you do day to day or month to month is going to depend on what you want to get out of the practice. Some people come to meditation for stress reduction or they wanna sleep better or they're having headaches or there's chronic pain. Some people come for medical reasons. They wanna lower blood pressure or they just want better well-being. So that's a a certain intention for the practice. So if that's an intention, then you would practice certain things with certain duration and a certain amount of time and certain frequency. Some people practice because they want psychological healing. They want something that's going to help with relationships, um, that's going to help with depression, anxiety, uh, maybe some trauma, um, maybe just some emotional stress that's going on in life. Some people come because they want something sp- with what, what we might call spiritual. Some people might come for some insight into the, their nature, into the sense of who am I? Why am I here? What am I doing? What is this? Human thing, this merry-go-round or Ferris wheel or whatever you want to call it, that oftentimes seem to go around in circles. What is this? And how can I live in a particular way where I feel uh, more alive, more connected, more joyful, more compassionate? So there's all these different intentions. You have 20 people in a room, everybody has a different attitudinal orientation to why they're practicing, why they came to meditation, and what they're doing. So it's important to remember that your meditation will always be personalized. It's always going to be, in part, what would you like to get out of it? What is, and as we said, the first noble truth, there is suffering. So we always ask ourselves, what is the dukkha? What is the dissatisfaction in my life right now? And how can I use my meditation applied to this circumstance that it's, that it's arise? So everybody in this room could be practicing something different for a different intention, even though we're within the ballpark of the pasana practice. Um, and that's good news because you can customize your practice. There are traditions that really are narrow in suggesting that students only practice one thing. And for a lot of students that can work, but for a lot of us that works maybe for a while, but then something else comes up in our life, something new comes up and we find we need a different tool and we don't know what to do, because it's not customizable. So I'm gonna teach Vipassana in a way that's gonna be customizable to what you need. It'll have dozens of tools, but we'll all be basically practicing the same types of meditation. Um, So you can customize, which is great. In a world where everything is so app-oriented and downloadable, um, it seems cool that we can customize our practice since we can customize everything else on our phones and so on. Um, Now, the second part of this, the second thing that determines what we're going to be practicing or what any person might practice has to do with this. Which path are you following? There are many different meditative paths. There are many different spiritual paths. There are many different Buddhist paths. And it's very interesting that, um, in my experience, we don't often talk about some of the differences in the paths and some of the differences in the teachings. Okay. And so I'm going to talk about why that's important as we go on. But I just wanted to say that some aspect of this is going to be a self-awareness on what path are you following? What path do you think you're following might be a way of saying it? Because you might have different teachers. Some of the people might be practicing in Zen, Tibetan Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, Thai forest, American Buddhism. There's a lot of Buddhisms and they're not actually the same. They have similarities, but they're not completely the same. So it helps to know which path you are trying to follow. And I'll explain in more detail about that. But sometimes people come and they've practiced from so many traditions that their sense of meditation gets sort of cluttered. They have so many tools and they're not quite sure like how they fit together. It's like they're they kind of they're kind of figure it out. But then sometimes it doesn't seem like like it's really happening. And it's hard to tease out like what am I supposed to be doing? And where is this path supposed to be going? So part of it's customized to the dukkha and the dissatisfaction you're having. And part of it is well, what path, are you, what path were you walking on when you started and where is that gone for you? And how can we figure out where you are on that particular path? I want to give just a very quick crash course in some of the differences um, in traditions. So you can kind of see where this is going. Um, if I have a situation in my meditation, for example, we, know we talk about the hindrances here a lot. Um, so we have the five hindrances. So let's say agitation and worry has arisen in my practice. And so I come to a fellow student in Sangha or I come to a teacher, it's like I'm having agitation. What do I do with this agitation? Well, if you go to a teacher that holds the view that you're already enlightened, they're going to tell you to do something specific with that emotion. If you come to a teacher that, teaches from a path perspective, that there's a progression in meditation, they're gonna give you a completely different tool to do that meditation. If you go to a Zen teacher, you might get smacked with bamboo, (laughs) you never know. Um, So the teachers are going to approach your hindrance or whatever is happening in the meditation based on the path that they are walking and they're presuming that you're walking with them. So you're gonna get a different answer for the different meditation experience that you're having. The, when you look at the history of Buddhism and the Dharma, um, we don't know what the Buddha taught is really what it comes down to. The Buddha taught, had his awakening. He studied the traditions of the time. That's what we, that's the story. That's what the history says, that he studied all kinds of different traditions. There were a thousand years of spiritual practices before the Buddha came around. Non-dual traditions were around before the Buddha. Yoga was alive and well at the time of the Buddha. So things were already going on. He wasn't, he didn't just like come onto the scene and was like, oh, meditation. Meditation was going on in all kinds of different ways, all kinds of different forms. So he has his awakening and then he teaches for 40 something years, I believe. Um, And then on his deathbed, he passes the torch and a meeting is adjourned with teachers and they agree upon what they think the teachings have been within the Sangha. And then those teachings are passed down for nearly 500 years through an oral tradition. So who knows? It's good to know that there was a long length of time before they were even written down as soon as the buddha died numerous schools branched out after his passing just like you would see in any kind of spiritual uh religious traditions right he died and then suddenly everyone's debating what he said right there's arguments there's debates schools are breaking off and forming here and there so this is what happens with with this kind of stuff um one of, one of the early riffs in in buddhism one of the early riffs in buddhism where schools started to break off was because students were arguing over whether or not an enlightened being would have a sexual fantasy. They could not come to an agreement, so schools broke off on both sides of that argument. So I'm sure there was all kinds of arguments where people were like, well, the Buddha didn't say that, and then the next thing you know, there's 20 people over here going off and doing something, and 30 people going off over here, depending on what it is. Um, It's just human beings doing what they do. That being said, that being said, I like to acknowledge that, but that being said, when you look at the Dharma um, in all its many forms, the traditions tend to have a very coherent path, a very coherent model. There's a beginning, there's an end, there's tools that get you to that said end. Um, So despite the fact that they chanted it for 500 years trying to keep the teachings up and it was passed down from teacher to student, something has been passed down that works. There is something in the Dharma that really works and has been working for people. It has been working for people. And I always find that to be so amazing, that for all these years I can sit in meditation and I can practice something and then several years later something will happen in my practice that's written in a text that's several thousand years old. And I didn't believe it would happen or know it would happen, but there it is, like a description of jhana or a description of loving kindness or something. So we know that something was passed down authentically from generation to generation and people have been doing this and have been laying claim to saying I've completed the teachings and they do get somewhere. So we can have some sense of assurance that we pick a path and we go from beginning to end and there's going to be something there that's really going to be enlivening and empowering and impassioned in our lives because of the practices. Now, again, that being said, the different Buddhist traditions are very different in what they say enlightenment is and what the tools do to get there. And this is something that I I wanna talk about a little bit in detail um, because as we move forward, it's gonna be important for you to know what my view is because I have a view. I'm using a certain Buddhism and then I have my own view of that Buddhism. And that's what we're gonna, because I'm, that's that's the view I have and so that view is gonna be out. Um, So it's important I think to be transparent about what that view is and why I teach from this perspective and how it's helped me as a person. Um, and of course it's the only view I can teach from because that's what I've been practicing for 25 years. I only know that view. I hear other views and I have, I know of other teachers and I do study with multiple teachers, but basically what I can offer you from my own experience is the view that I've had as I've walked the path in the way that I've had, the way that, the way that I have walked, <laughs> the way that I have had walked. Um, let's see one other thing about. This. I wanted to just talk about the um, the fusion and the merging of things with Dharma. So if you look at the big schools of Buddhism, all of the big schools of Buddhism have infused into their Dharma something from the culture that was already there, some type of spiritual practice, some type of mysticism or meditation practice that was already there at the time. So when you look at all the different things, when you look at Tibetan Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism is a fusion of some traditional Buddhist ideas and the mystical bond tradition that was there at the time. It's a very shamanistic tradition. When you look at, uh, Zen, Zen is definitely a combination of some Buddhist ideas with samurai ideas and the nature mysticism of Japan. So there's all kinds of things in there. American Buddhism. American Buddhism is like a stew. American Buddhism has stuff from all the other Buddhisms. And it's a heavy dose of Western psychotherapy, overlay of Christianity, uh, New Age culture significantly. Um, There's one other thing in there that I wanted to, what else was in there? Oh, non-dual teachings, which were previous to the Buddha. So you've got six or seven different types of meditative and things that are infused in what we call American Buddhism. So there's nothing pure out here. It's just fusions (laughs) of things, right? It's just fusions of things. And I like to, th- I, I like that to be, uh... oh, anyway, I'm not gonna go there. Okay, so my next thing I wanted to say. So we've got these fusions. I'm trained in Theravada Buddhism, but I grew up in an American Buddhist environment. So what that means is a lot of what I teach is traditional Buddhist ideas. And these traditional Buddhist ideas come from the Pali Canon or the Pali Suttas. And um, I like, that model because for me it's the clearest most concise and most practical experience of the dharma that i've had personally and so that's why i have practiced it that's why i continue to practice it and that's why i teach oftentimes i think and this is just a guess but this is my sense as i've taught over the last six or seven years when students come to me and say oh i really like this thing that you do here or i really like the way you explain this those things 99 percent of the time are the traditional teachings when people say, oh, I've never heard that before, it's, it's 99% of the time, it's the Theravada traditional teachings, uh, because we don't have a lot of the Theravada traditional teachings often in American Buddhism. So my teaching has a, a strong traditional Theravada slant to it, even though I am an American Buddhist teacher, because that's where I grew up, in the Dharma. But I find more and more that students really like some of the clarity that comes from the Eightfold Path and the Enlightenment Factors and the Hindrance Model and explaining all the details of that practice. Um, So that's where I come from, because that's what I practice. And I've done a little bit of Zen, and I started in non-dual teachings, and had a year of non-dual training with my teacher training. And so I've got a bunch of other stuff um, in experience. And then as a therapist and mindfulness-based therapy and so on. But my teachings are mostly ancient Buddhism, also called tradition of the elders or Theravada Buddhism. So I I teach mostly from the oldest texts that we have. And I try to keep it as consistent to that as possible. Because in my experience, my path tends to feel coherent when all the pieces line up. I see the path as a puzzle. And when you can understand how all of the pieces fit together, my personal experience is the meditation feels really supportive and sustaining in my life. It becomes very practical. And I understand why I'm practicing the way I'm practicing. And the unfolding of the insights seem to go exactly as it is written. It's just like, oh, there's that. That's in there. Oh, there's this other thing. Oh, look, that's in here too. And it just unfolds in a particular way. Um, so one of my commitments is to put that together I've got it as a student, but as a teacher, my commitment is to kind of put it together so you guys can see that clarity that I've come to really cherish um, in the traditional teachings of the Dharma. And again, we're sitting in an American Buddhist soup. So all of my teachings are an amalgamation, of course, of this as well. Um, So I just want to put that out there. The reason I handed this out today, and we'll get to it in a few minutes, the enlightenment factors. The reason I handed this out today is because the Buddha talks about skillful and unskillful views. And um, I wanted to bring that up. We've talked about view, but the Buddha has this idea that there are skillful and unskillful views. And what he means by that is that there are points of view, there are perspective, perceptions, and beliefs Religious and non religious, spiritual and non spiritual, that support the freedom that he experienced in his meditation and his practice. And there are equally views that tend to hinder that development. So for the Buddha, not all views were skillful. Not all spiritual views led to the enlightenment that he said he experienced. So at the time, there were other traditions, and in the Buddha's experience, When he practiced, he said, that didn't get me where I wanted to go. I wanted to go over here. This was its own enlightenment. There were multiple times in the Buddha's history where the Buddha practiced in a tradition, completed the practice, and was asked to be a teacher in the tradition. And the Buddha said, this is not what I'm seeking. This completion of the path did not work the way I wanted it to work. I'm still searching for something that was not given to me when I completed the path. So at the time of the Buddha, he was still looking for something And when he did his awakening, he created his path. So there are significant differences. And I wanted to talk about this fallacy that happens sometimes. And it's something that we're oftentimes discouraged from talking about. So I wanted to bring it up and talk about it openly. So there is this phrase that I I often hear uh, in spiritual communities. And it says something like this. All spiritual teachings or all religions teach the same thing. It's a very common phrase. All spiritual traditions teach the same thing. All religions are teaching the same thing. Maybe. I'd like to give a different perspective on this, on this idea and t- explain to you where this idea sort of comes from. There's this, so there's an idea. It's, it's all the same. All the teachings are the same. All spiritual traditions are the same. If you were to write out on a board with headings all the different religious traditions, all the different spiritual traditions, and then list the tools and the practices and the different beliefs... If you were to do that and then cross off all the differences, all the differences, you could look at that and say, oh, look, they're teaching all the same thing. If you take out all the differences, what you're left with is all the same. There is similarities across all traditions. The reason I'm saying that is if you list everything out and then cross off all the similarities, then what you have is like, oh, my gosh, spiritual traditions are really different. Over here, there's a belief in this deity that does this thing. And then there's this prayer that does this other thing. And over here, we're mindful of breathing. And there's this. So if you look at spiritual traditions, yes, there are similarities across all spiritual traditions and all religions. And there are differences amongst them as well. So the reason I'm bringing that up is the analogy here has to do with how we decide what we're going to practice and how we're going to practice. So when we look at the traditions, for example, let's take Christianity, for example. So in most cases, Christianity has a significant belief around Jesus as the son of God and savior. Now, Christianity also talks a lot about compassion and equanimity and a lot of other stuff. So if I put Christianity up here in Buddhism, right? And I look at the stuff, if I cross off Jesus, Oh, look, compassions in Christianity and compassions in Buddhism. Oh, they're the same. But if you go to someone who's a Christian who is practicing, who is, has a sense of being saved by a personal relationship with Jesus, that's not the same. That's not the same experience. It's not the same practice. And so I want to bring that out into the dialogue because it's really important that we honor the differences as well as the similarities. Because oftentimes we think, here's where the, the crux of it is. We presume the sameness is the truthfulness, that when we lay out the religions, that when we look at the things that are the same, if we just eliminate all that's different, we'll have the truth. That must be the answer. We'll just take all the differences out, and then we'll have the truthfulness. And what's the same must be the truth, and what's different can be discarded. But if you're a Christian, that's not really very honoring, right? It's like, you're like your religion actually is just Buddhism. If you just take out the, this other part, this take out this other part of it, you're basically a Buddhist. So we got to be careful in not acknowledging that differences matter to people in their spirituality, and they're not always the same. The fact that it's the same doesn't necessarily make it true. Another example is this. Uh, this is the other sort of way I've looked at it. Um, so. Let's say you have three game, three sports, football, basketball, (laughs) baseball. Okay. They're similar. They all have a, they all keep score. They all have balls. There's a beginning and end to the game. There's players, there's teams, um, whatever else there's. Yeah. So anyway, so you get there, there's these similarities, right? There's these similarities to these three games, right? But are they the same? What makes baseball baseball is that it has a bat and not a soccer ball. What makes football what it is is that it has a football and an end zone and goal, whatever, goalposts. I'm not a big sports person, so I don't know what's there. Those things at the end. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And the reason I'm saying this is just we have this idea that sameness is goodness and difference, difference in spirituality is we just don't want to talk about the differences because that would be, we don't talk about the differences. So... Just because there's sameness doesn't mean the same parts are the truthful parts. Human beings have been making the same mistakes, all kinds of mistakes over the years. So if you look at five different cultures, you can look at sameness and all those cultures want that same aspect to be changed because they can't figure out how to decrease the violence or decrease climate change or whatever the case may be. So similarity is not necessarily the truthfulness when we're talking about spiritual practices. And I wanted to honor the differences because for people in different spiritual traditions, what makes their practice their practice is the differences. It is the belief in the God. It is the prayer practice. It is, if we just eliminate it, then it becomes this conflating process. And it's not always respectful of the people practicing. What does conflation mean? Oh, to reduce down to one, just to reduce it down uh, to one thing. Um, And yet, looking at similarities is awesome because it looks at the unique and connected humanity of people, right? It's that's a healthy perspective to say, "Oh my gosh, look, all of these spiritual traditions talk about love. All of them talk about this." So I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just offering a counterbalance to the perspective so we begin to at least honor the differences because we'll need to honor those differences. You'll see why in a few minutes. We're going to need to honor those differences as we move forward in practicing vipassana, and I'll show you why. So I just want to say that in the spirit of camaraderie in that sense of like honoring our shared humanity and spiritual traditions but also acknowledging that things are different and those differences oftentimes are what make things special and unique um, for people and sometimes for people their difference in their practice really is what's sacred to them and so when we try to wash out the sacredness of somebody's practice. So, so how does this apply to the enlightenment factors in the Eightfold Path? Okay. Okay so two things i wanted to say again i wanted to repeat that the way you do your practice is going to be based on what you'd like to get out of it where is the dissatisfaction in life and what path have you chosen to explore for those of you who've been here on sundays you will often hear robert say to new students i hope this is a life transforming experience and if not there are so many wonderful meditation centers important in portland with all kinds of different paths Please find one, practice it. You're obviously being called. Go follow the path and find the freedom that you're looking for. I love that Robert That Robert does that. I love that. Um, so it's in that spirit that we're having this, uh, in this conversation. So the Buddha had various views going on at his time, and he had his own views of what the Dharma was. And as we move forward... I would like us to explore what that view is and then get in touch with our own views that oftentimes trip up our practice or or cause stumbling blocks in our practice. So if you look at this diagram here, the reason we have this, I'm gonna give a brief summary of something you've heard me say a bunch of times and I'm gonna continue to say it. Um, The Buddha's insight if I could reduce it down into the simplest way of putting it, the Buddha's insight was that we are participating and playing a role in shaping our moment-to-moment experience of life. And that every moment that passes, we play a role. We shape the experience by the qualities of our heart and the qualities of our mind. And that we can cultivate qualities of consciousness or habits that we might say in modern speak, these qualities of consciousness. And when we cultivate these qualities of consciousness, And we bring them consistently to the present moment there is an awakening that happens this is what the buddha basically taught that meditation practice cultivates qualities compassion wisdom equanimity it cultivates qualities so the buddha's main teaching his main insight was that we play a role we shape our experience our experience is not happening we are players on that stage and we can practice taking part in our life in a particular way that fills us with joy and compassion and connectivity. So that's really what the meditation practice is about. Um, obviously I'm being reductionistic, but that, that is what the meditation practice is about. These seven factors of awakening, these seven enlightenment factors are the qualities that in traditional Buddhism, the Buddha said are required for awakening. These are the qualities that meditation practice is designed to cultivate and all meditation practices in some form will cultivate various ones on this list, Vipassana practice in particular is designed to cultivate all seven. It's set up to do that. If you practice it correctly, it, it always works in a way that these qualities are being nourished and generated in the heart and the mind. So these are the ones that we'll be exploring in Vipassana. These Mindfulness, investigation, effort, rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. The Buddha's view was very holistic and very integrated. That was not the case for the spiritual traditions at the time. There were plenty of traditions at the time that only emphasized or said one of these factors had to be cultivated for illumination. And that's important to know as we move into this, because we're going to be doing all seven. Investigation, this little cute guy here with the butterfly. Investigation, also known as curiosity or discernment. Investigation is the wisdom part of the path. There were many traditions at the time that thought meditation was not necessary. All you need to do is read the text and understand wisdom. No causality. That was a big thing at the time. Huge, actually. Um, Equanimity on the far right, the balance to our investigation. Equanimity is our non-reactive loving awareness, our acceptance. That's our acceptance quality where we take what's arising moment to moment and we bring an openness. We lean in and we accept. Now, there are plenty of spiritual traditions, both Buddhist, non-dual, traditional, mystical traditions that say that the only thing you have to do for liberation is to be present. Just be present and accepting. There is nothing else that needs to be done. There's all kinds of traditions that have that as the path. In this path, there's seven other qualities, six other qualities that the Buddha said he thought were necessary to be in tandem for that experience that he had. So that's a different way of looking at it. Some of us come up in in traditions where the goal of the path is present moment awareness, where we're told present moment awareness is the goal. But in traditional Buddhist teachings, the goal is to use present moment awareness to cultivate the seven factors of awakening. Present moment awareness is not the end goal. Present moment awareness is the vehicle. And mindfulness is the tool that we use to make that motion. So equanimity, we see here as an acceptance, is now part of a family of things, not its own, not its own goal, not its own path. Um, So when we come to Vipassana and we start practicing traditional Vipassana, sometimes I know when I started doing traditional Vipassana practice, it was hard for me to wrap my mind around the fact that I was supposed to do something in the meditation other than letting go. It took me a long time to believe that that was actually a legitimate practice because no one had ever shown me this. I had only learned the equanimity part. So I was only told that letting go, being present, and not reacting was all I was supposed to be doing. No one ever said that there was instructions to balance that equanimity with other heart-mind qualities. So again, this is why I'm speaking of views, because there are views that equanimity is the only thing that we need. And so what I will be teaching is this integrated view, which is different. It might be different for some people concentration the juggler i love this concentration the juggler this is our jhana practice this is our continuous mindfulness experience right this is our concentration there are many views many american buddhist views in fact and some of you will i'm going to say something and i know you've heard this before some of you for sure some teachers teach that concentration is not really necessary or that very little concentration is necessary, or that the jhanas themselves are dangerous, should be avoided, or that they're addicting even. And yet what you see here is a traditional Buddhist model where concentration is just hanging out with tranquility and equanimity as part of the pack, as an integrated part of the program. It is an actual part of traditional Buddhist practice, is concentration practices. But there are traditions that really don't like them so if you come from a tradition that has told you that jhana practices or concentration practices are bad and you come to me and you say oh i'm having this sensation of euphoria in my practice i'm going to teach you how to do the jhanas i'm going to say i'm going to tell you what to do with that energy in regards to this diet i'm going to say here's what you do with it there's a whole set of teachings because that's my view But someone else, if you brought that question to they would have a different view and say, oh no, don't don't do that, don't get attached. And that's just another view. So these are the kind of things, as we start doing this practice, you're going to hear me say things that are gonna be off to what you have heard before, probably in some ways, not always, but that's why we're doing this today. So as we move forward, you can understand that I'm gonna be doing all of the practices together as one thing, because that's how I practice. So concentration. So another thing here, is we have effort. I was in gymnastics when I was a kid. I never could do a handstand very well. Not a little one-handed handstand. Um, So effort. In this model, effort is a significant part of the practice. So these are the factors of awakening. These are the qualities that the Buddha talks about are necessary for liberation. These are the ones he said, I developed these. (coughs) These are the ones that worked for me. (coughs) Effort is a significant one now there's quite a few spiritual traditions where effort is seen as counterproductive and non-effort is considered to be the name of the game and that oftentimes students are asked not to do anything just to be no effort is applied that's very different than what we're seeing here right so it's very different it's a very different different thing i remember when one of my teachers monastic teacher first told me that I should change my breathing. I was like, why would I change my breathing? That's like, that's not meditation. Like I was really like, what are you talking about? I'm supposed to, and he was like, you need to put effort into changing your breathing to get this sensation. And I was like, no, that's not meditation. That's something else. So I've had this experience in coming to these practices where I was like, that doesn't seem right at all. That's not how I've experienced meditation. Um, we see this effort one, there's a big contrast between non-dual traditions and path-oriented traditions. In non-dual traditions, there's a lot of non-doing. In fact, a lot of, a lot of. if you look on, uh, oh, I wanted to bring one in. I had one actually that I had saved. It was an advertisement for a, a non-dual class that was coming. In the advertisement, it basically said, Why are you spending all your time practicing meditation when you can just have direct experience of enlightenment? That whole tradition has a different sense of enlightenment where direct experience practice is what's valued. Here, effort and movement is valued. It's just a different way of looking at it. But if we come in and think that it's the same, oftentimes students stumble and like I did, I get confused, you start doubting the practice, you start doubting the teacher. Um, So the, the reason I have these laid out was because for me, Once I saw them and understood how they got interconnected, then there was this relief of like, oh, I see how this operates. It's not as weird and funky as I thought to begin with. You can begin to see that different traditions emphasize different ones of these qualities and have practices that are primarily used to develop these these aspects. So you can begin to see the sameness and you can begin to see the difference in the practices which gives you more access to the tools and you can use them more effectively. The last one that I want to say is... One of the qualities is not reading things upside down, apparently. Um, <laughs> okay, so let's see. Concentration, equanimity. Yeah, so okay, so tranquility, rapture. This goes back. These are intimately connected to concentration. Um, but tranquility and rapture. Yeah, so tranquility and rapture... Um, come from two things, present moment awareness, the ability to string together moments of mindfulness, and active investigation, doing things in the meditation to actually cultivate them. And tranquility, where's my tranquility? Tranquility, does anyone know what the primary practices are that cultivate tranquility? Take a guess. What practice might cultivate tranquility? Yeah, deep breathing, certainly, because that leads to concentration. And there's another one. Yes, definitely the breathing. Metta? Huh? Metta? Yes, metta. Metta as well. Loving-kindness practice falls under tranquility. That's where that practice is defined, under tranquility. So the Buddha suggests loving-kindness practice to cultivate this factor of awakening. That's where that goes. So And the breathing, the tranquility, also comes from Arjana, which is the deep breathing. So you begin to see where the practices are in this and suddenly you're like, oh, I know why I'm practicing loving kindness or I know why I'm doing breathing in this way. And it opens up the practice and the practice becomes so stable and supportive and nourishing when we have an ability to look at the differences and the sameness in our practice because then we can customize it because we really know what we need and we know what the practices are designed to do. I wanted to do one more perspective and this one is goes back to tranquility. So you'll see that loving kindness is under tranquility. Now at the time of the Buddha and today, um, well, let me backtrack. Let me backtrack and say one more thing. Cause that will make more <laughs> sense. It is not uncommon. Okay, so it's not uncommon when you look at the enlightenment factors that either a tradition or a teacher will really like one of them and it will be be reduced down to a single factor of awakening, right? That's what the, the tradition, the lineage or the teacher, it will just be one set of tools under one of these. Now, like I said, in the Buddhist, traditional Buddhist model, it's an integration. The Buddha asks us to do three things, cultivate the factors, sustain them as a way of life, as a way of living in our heart and mind, and to balance them. So there's a whole process for the enlightenment factors that we're invited to do. To cultivate, to sustain, and to balance. So there's a lot of work to be done. <laughs> so we, and there's seven of them, uh, but they all work together. So there's all these enlightenment factors. So cultivate, sustain, and balance. Now, it is common for us as teachers often to say things like, and I do this, and I try not to do it, but it's almost impossible not to, um, to say things like, you know, in the end, the Dharma is just about blank. In the end, the Dharma is just about love. In the end of the day, the Dharma is just about wisdom. At the end of the day, the Dharma is just about community. So, as teachers, you want to like kind of bring some punch home, right? You want to like, land, you want to stick the landing in a talk or in a, a conversation with someone. And so you take the entire path and you're like, but in the end, it's just about this. So, the problem with those quotes is those quotes then become like seen as a declaration that, that we can just take one of these and it's all just one of them. And we mistake the summary for an abandonment of all the other, other parts of the path. And so oftentimes you'll see quotes like in Buddhist magazines where some famous teacher will have had a moment where they said, you know, in the end the Dharma is, and then it gets mistaken for the entire path. So it's, that's another reason why it's helpful to see all these so the, a common one we obviously see in the West is, in the end, it's just love, right? It's just love. Because it is, but it's also, sorry, it's also <laughs> all seven of these combined. Love is just one set of the teachings. At the time of the Buddha, there were many, many paths that just cultivated the Brahma Viharas. The Buddha did not invent the Brahma Viharas. Loving kindness practice preceded the Buddha. So... There were traditions. And what the Buddha said was, loving kindness, you cannot have liberation without love. So that's wonderful, right? Because that would be weird if there wasn't any love. Involved. It's like, oh, there's this whole thing called awakening. Love isn't involved at all, but it's a great thing. So love obviously is involved. But the Buddha also said, love without the other factors isn't necessarily going to bring awakening. He said you could be loving but not wise wise but not loving you could be loving but not equanimous so he said love is limited and it has to be surrounded by these other heart mind qualities for it to blossom into the love that he often talked about which was something more intense than the one we see there so this is just a way for you to look at these different same and differences that you see in your practice we're all coming to our meditation with from different teachers and different lineages and I wanted to be able to move forward and be able to talk about things and allow you to see the differences and the similarities um, without it being too discombobulating as it has been for me, I know, uh, certainly. Uh, and give us a language to talk about it, a language to talk about it. Um, I think that was the last. Let me just, okay. So let me just say one last thing. Um, say one other thing because it's like, it's kind of on my heart and in my mind. Um, the only other time, the only time that I know of in my teaching in the Dharma that I ever visibly offended somebody, <laughs> visibly offended somebody was when I talked about this. The only time in the last six or seven years that someone visibly was explicitly offended was when I talked about this. Um, so when I thought about talking about it tonight, there was this sense of insecurity that came up of like, ah, because there seems to be a trend in American Buddhism where we are not allowed to talk about differences. We are not allowed to say that maybe this does this or that. And what, what was offensive to the person was there was a fear that came up that if, the, if there's differences in meditation, then how do I know I'm practicing the right one? If they're not the same, then technically it could be wrong. And so when I talked to this person afterwards, what had come up was this fear where there was a safety in being able to say, everything I'm doing is equal, egalitarian, all the practice do the exact same thing. I can just do this thing. And there was a sense of safety. As soon as I said, well, maybe there's these other things, there's these other ways of doing it. There was a fear that came up. And so there was a sense of like, well, then how do I know what I'm doing? Like, what if it's wrong? What if it's not going to get me to enlightenment? So I wanted to reassure myself included, because there's plenty of times that I'm practicing and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is not going to get me enlightened. I don't know what this thing is, but this is definitely, I need to get, I need a new meditation or a new something. Um, So that's doubt. That's one of our hindrances, right? Doubt in practice. Um, So what I wanted to just reassure us is that Goinka taught me that Goenka said it's best to find a path that speaks to your heart and pursue it to its end. Find a path that speaks to you and go all the way. And he said, you'll get more out of your life and more out of your spiritual experience if you get into a path that feels right and feels coherent and feels worthy of your time and go as far as you can. He said, it's not about as much the right and wrong, but about what calls to you in your experience as a human. Because there's all kinds of ways of blossoming the heart and mind and all of the different traditions may have different things they call enlightenment. But at the end of the day, it's your life that's doing it. You're the one that's doing the practice. It's your path. You're not walking somebody else's path. It's your experience. And he also went on to say, as a warning to Westerners, he says Westerners like to window shop when it comes to spiritual practices. So we like to practice a little over here and a little over here and this practice and this practice and this practice and this practice. And what he said is in the beginning of your journey, shop around all you like, but eventually you want to find something that works for you so you can go deeper because otherwise you have six or seven techniques you're practicing, but none of them are very deep. They're all very shallow because you can't spend the hours in your day to really practice. And what he said, it's like digging for water. You're out in the desert and you're panicking. And you know that there's water somewhere. So you dig down a half a foot and you're like, oh, I didn't find it. Okay, I'm going over here. And you dig down for another half a foot and another half a foot. And if you had just dug down a foot and a half, you would have gotten what you were looking for. But instead, you have a bunch of superficial holes and the water is like right there underneath. And you haven't gone deep enough into your practice to experience what you want. So just remember that it's your practice and your path and your life on that path. So it's not as much about whether it's right or wrong or where it's going or not going. Is it going where you would like it to go for you, for your heart, for your mind? Is it working for you? And do you have a community or a teacher that you think can take you along the path in a way that feels safe and secure? And you're going going where you need to go. So in the end, I wanted to bring it back around to that. We don't know, right? We don't know. But I wanted to make sure that we understood as we move forward that there are similarities and differences, and I will be talking a lot about them as we go. Um, we have a few minutes for question before we wrap. Like I said, it was going to be a long talk tonight, um, but I'm glad I got through all that information I hope that was